Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Grandstand cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand. But they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Welcome to The Final Word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you here in Brisbane at the conclusion of a wonderful test match. Australia beating Pakistan by 40 runs at the Gabba. But the fact that we even are here today, Jeff, and not having done this a couple of days ago, the test match stretching out to five days, we had no expectations, but it turned into an absolute classic. Yeah, I mean, they pulled it out of nowhere. Literally the end of day two, you were saying this is done. You know, Pakistan had lost eight wickets in that evening session. They were completely cooked. They were going to follow on and just get rolled. Um, For it to go to day five, yeah, it's one of those ones where I feel like we'll get to say, you know, we were there. You know, I was there that day. I saw that. I saw that innings. I mean, the third highest fourth innings total of all time. Pakistan made. It was really something and getting to experience it with the Pakistani supporters down there next to the race yesterday. Like, there's some of the memories that I'll take with me for a very long time. Well, yeah, I mean, the the fact that, you know, that that people turned out for that day five, you contrast that to day five against New Zealand last year when, you know, it was a dead match, but no one cared and no one showed up. And and, and this year, they had a few thousand people in. You know, they'd come down to see, you know, two wickets to go. It could have been over in two balls, literally, you know, starting that morning. And the fact that, that, that Pakistan battled it out for, you know, a good couple of hours and got within 40 runs of the win and they had that pocket of wild support you know it, it was it was something that it was a tenor that we don't normally have at Australian Cricket Grounds. Yeah, for many reasons, it was our sport at its very best, and we'll bring that all to you today on The Final Word, alongside the second weekend of the Women's Big Bash League and a bit of a preview of the Blokes Big Bash League. Jeff, we're into into the middle part of the summer where we're going to see 2020 cricket every single night. So many bashes, and the size of them is notably large. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just can't get away with a mid-sized bash at this stage. Don't, no small bashes, not interested in those. Don't bring them. Don't bring them around. But uh, if they're big, we're into it. We're also into Test Match Cricket principally, so we'll start there. Um, back on day one, Australia won the toss on Thursday. It feels like a really long time ago. It feels like so much has happened in our, in our collective lives since then. I don't We've even remember it. I mean, I, I feel so like much. I wasn't born on Thursday. You know, yeah. my life has changed. I'm a different person. We actually we actually woke up on, on the Thursday to, to mm. the cricket not being the main story. It was the MOU. It was the Australian Cricketers Association uh, yes. in, in the middle of a stoush with Cricket Australia, and that played out through the test match and it kind of pervaded the, the coverage of the match in, in some respects because it was such a notable story and we're not a politics podcast per se but it'd be remiss of us not to mention the fact that that was fairly messy. Yeah well certainly the first couple of days that was the story you know because uh, Pakistan were getting stomped on the field as as many people have predicted their batting wasn't supposed to hold up in, in Australian conditions and and so it did come down to this uh, this argument between you know the the uh, the union and the and the governing body and the, the clauses they were putting in for women cricketers that they weren't putting in for men's cricketers and this ridiculous stuff about sort of behavioural mm. expectations and that, you know, the women needed to be, uh, you know, be nice and demure and, and, and sort of make sure the skirt was a credit card length below the knee and all that kind of <laughs> garbage. Um, and then, you know, getting chipped pretty solidly by uh, by the English Cricket Board, by Claire Connor over there and the BBC was, was having a go. And, it, I mean, James Sutherland sort of made out that, that the Cricket Australia was, was misrepresented, their position had been misrepresented, and that may be so, but it certainly was 
wasn't a good look. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was, it was muddied up. By the time we got to the, the end of this media cycle, a news cycle, with the way this story evolved, there was it was scrappy. It was down to a statement war. There was a, a, a media release put out yesterday suggesting that, that negotiations had broken down and the whole thing just uh, reeked of something that should have stayed behind closed doors. But once it was aired in the public domain, um, it, it wasn't flattering for anyone involved, really. But meantime, on the field, there's this sort of glorious example mm. of Test cricket unfolding uh, from a position that absolutely nobody expected. And, and it started to get, you know, the dream started to come alive sort of through day four. And then by the end of day four, it was a, a fully fledged golden vision of unicorns leaping over the city walls. And, you know, and then day five was just this ridiculous postscript to it. It almost didn't matter what happened on day five, did it? No, it, it didn't. It, it, by the time we got to, if it was, I think I wrote, if it was two balls or two hours, it was still just a privilege that we were even getting to that stage and Pakistan had, had truly earned that opportunity. But going back all the way to the start of the test match, so this story's running around with the, the, the contractual arrangements and whatever else, and the cricket wasn't too crash hot. I'm going to be perfectly honest here. The day one wasn't an inspirational day of test cricket. I think Australia did a fairly good job of laying a base, but Pakistan's bowlers, uh, were the, were the fast bowler trio, were, were the three who were meant to cause Australia problems, and they yeah. really didn't. I mean, the, the opening stand between... Renshaw and Warner was, was quite convincing. Renshaw in particular looks like the sort of player who you can build around for a decade. He looks so solid at the crease. Yeah, I didn't think the, the Pakistani bowlers performed badly. You know, you often see visiting sides come in and, and just really fall apart at the Gabba because they can't figure out sort of what lengths to bowl. They're getting carried away trying to be too attacking. They're, they're, they're sort of using the short ball attack and they're getting mm. picked off with the, the horizontal bat strokes and all the rest of it. Um, I thought they actually bowled pretty well, the trio of left armers. Well, but certainly Wahab and, and Muhammad Amir bowled really yeah, well. Wahab I mean, when he was used, but Rahad Ali wasn't, wasn't too crash hot, and he, and he didn't send down a lot of overs either. But, you know, it was reasonable batting conditions, and, you know, Wahab and, and Muhammad Amir had to sort of find a way to contain the Australians, and Renshaw in particular played well in just, just being patient and sort of waiting them out. Um, and, and, you know, he didn't batter slowly. He was outscoring David Warner while Warner was out there, you know, for the first 25 runs or so. Yeah, but, I, I enjoyed that after the Adelaide uh, experience that, that Warner was, uh, he was, was uh, overtaken by Renshaw a couple of times much to the amusement of those covering the game on radio and television. And Warner sort of showed the preparedness to, to bat out a slow innings. You know, he was uh, sort of going at a strike rate of 50 or so and, and wasn't feeling the need to, you know, to really get on top and dominate. And there were two quick wickets. So Warner went for 32, leg before to Muhammad Amir, and then, and then Usman Khawaja. And this was an interesting, interesting dismissal mm-hmm. in, in the context of the India tour, which they'll be selecting in the next month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, coming down the track and picking out short mid-wicket, it, it wasn't pretty. It just looked like he hadn't quite switched on yet. And I think that can happen to a player. You know, it's very early in the innings. He sees a, a nice bit of flight that he likes. All right, I'll come down and meet that. Um, and just played away from his body a bit and lifted it, you know, that which anybody can do, really. And as it happened, they had the short mid-wicket in and snared the catch. But So I think it really comes down to how does Kawaja bat against Yassir Shah in the next four innings that he's likely to play in Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, and if Yassir gets him a couple more times cheaply, then there might be tremors around whether Kawaja makes it onto the India tour or not, which seems ridiculous because he's playing so yeah. well. But he also seemed so just desolate in Sri Lanka. You know, I was on that tour Mm. watching him live and he just seemed to have absolutely no idea how to face anybody on those spinning decks. Yeah, seeing a member of the side, you'd, you'd want him going because yeah. you just feel like that's the right thing to do. You want him to solve the problem. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. He turned 30 during the test match. But with Renshaw um, going so well and looking so composed at the crease and with the likelihood that Shaw Marsh will, will get a start in the first test in India due to his experience in those conditions and 
quite strong record there. He may he may be the one to get squeezed. So there is there is some pressure on Kawaja at the moment. I feel. Yeah, I mean he may be, but it also may be a matter of you know Maddinson being squeezed out down the order, Sean Marsh coming in sure. sort of in the middle order, and then maybe they go Hanscom at six and Marsh at five or something like that. I worry about Renshaw in India, just you know young left hander Ravi Ashwin turning the ball away from him. Thank you very much. Like, I mean, that just could be eight wickets for Ashwin. Yeah, I, 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 I fall into that category as well. I think that the broader benefit of Renshaw being ready for the first test at the Gabba next year, whether that's um, him, him playing the rest of the Shield season, which can't, yeah. can't hurt, and, and obviously playing you know, competitive Shield cricket mm-hmm. all the way to the end. And if, if Queensland were to do well in, in that tournament, they'd be even playing in the, in the Shield final. And then going through to um, uh, maybe getting himself some league cricket or even county cricket in England, that's not for nothing. I think that'd be a better investment almost than going to India and being under the pressure you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and, and maybe sort of coming home, you know, feeling feeling desolate because he's he's failed in a few innings and been dropped. Although maybe they just have to take him, get him in the tour matches, get him in the spinning nets over there and just see if he can handle it. And if he looks like he might be able to, he might be able to use his height and use his long, sort of long stride and get down the pitch and get over the top of the ball. And, you know, he may well be able to pull it off. I don't know. Two men who certainly will be in India, are Peter Hanscom and the captain, Steve Smith. They combined for 172 uh, either side of mm-hmm. uh, stumps on day one. So they came together in the second session. It was a wicketless third session. Smith was fortunate on 97. I shouldn't under, understate his innings. That was a very very good innings. He, he batted very nicely. He was fortunate on fifty odd as well. He got uh, got dropped. He did uh, when he was when he was fifty or so, and then he nicked off on ninety seven, and, and no one and appealed. And no one appealed. Three falling <laughs> in the woods. Uh, it was, Muhammad Amir actually got him out after yeah. having um, gone down like uh, the proverbial about an hour before. So he misfielded a ball at fine leg, went down, and everyone was oh, yes. thinking the worst. It was oh, is it going to be a knee reconstruction? Is his tour going to be over? Is this Simon Jones all over again? Will it destroy his career? All the rest, and he was back bowling within an hour. Which my conspiracy theory is that he just felt a little bit embarrassed about his fielding. <laughs> he just didn't feel too good about letting the ball go past his leg. He thought, oh gosh, I better quickly come up with a story. We've really? all been there, Jeff. Yeah, all, some way we? or another, we've all have been we? there. Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 think, I think as humans, we've all at one stage or another felt embarrassed about our behaviour and tried to um, tried to apportion it to something else. And in this case, he quickly realised that he you know, landed awkwardly on his knee and thought that maybe that may have been the reason that he misfielded. Right, so it was a case of like, ah, ah, Really? Like, do you think it was? It was a huge performance. Like, I was gutted. I was. I was like, oh my god, he's. Gone. I was like, he's. He's gone. He's gone for a year. How could he you was, not be? I mean, he, he was he, howling. His comeback's one of the one of the stories of world cricket. Yeah, I mean, he bowled. He was bowling beautifully as well, and he, and he continued to bowl well yeah. as he came back. His best spell of the entire match, indeed, was the one he bowled that night an hour after his after supposed knee. knee injury. But we, and we, but we had him. He was writhing around. We were all saying, "Oh, Simon Jones. Oh no, was never quite the same." Absolutely. And all the rest of it. Um, he got stretched off, and then just kind of wandered on an hour later so uh, I don't know I mean I think you can injure yourself and, and it can be intensely painful for a minute or so and then you realise it wasn't that bad and then maybe you feel silly so you're like uh, maybe <laughs> just stretch me off and then I'll, I'll just come back in half an hour when it's settled down yeah, I, think, I think the giveaway was when he walked onto the stretcher for a but anyway <laughs> um, uh, I, I, the getting nicking off Smith on, on 97 and not being given I think that can the, happen though like when, the it, when, when I crashed my eight, early 80s Volvo um, a few years ago I drove it onto the tow truck like the, the entire front end was stoved in like the engine had devoured itself, and that that hearty old bugger of a thing was like, I'm just going to give it one more go. I turned the key and it fired up and started, and I drove it onto the truck. It was leaking like engine fluids everywhere, but you know, gave it one last go. So maybe that's how we got on the stretcher. If you're listening at home, do not follow Jeff Lemon's instructions on pretty much anything when it comes to personal safety, given he's broken every one of his limbs. <laughs> oh, uh, not all at the same time, no, separately. Just is that worse or better? Ridiculous. Would it be better if I'd done them all at once in some very good or No, I've ticked them off one, two three, four, also a few ribs, a couple of toes. 
uh, split my head open. But you know, whatever. Yeah, you're, you're a unique that's how you individual. Live. That's how uh, you live. So, uh, so Smith nicks off, and while I wanted to mention that one more time, is Stuart Broad was so on point on Twitter after that occurred. Broad liking and favouriting and retweeting a whole bunch of tweets uh, about how how amusing the episode was. Of course, Stuart Broad who smashed the ball to first slip yeah. uh, at Lee at Leeds, wasn't it? The uh, first no, test match. Uh, Trent Bridge, no, Trent Bridge. Sorry, yeah. first tre- te- first test yep. of the 2013 Ashes series to Ashton Agar and copped endless grief for it and didn't it did. walk and the Stuart in, Broad in defense, the like stuff and all the rest of it. In defence of Stuart Broad, which I hate saying because I, I really find it hard to like Stuart Broad. Oh. He did edge it to the keeper and then it rebounded to first slip. Apparently, that like for a lot of people, that makes it worse. If you nick behind and don't walk, that's okay. But if you nick to first slip, it's just too outrageous that you would not walk. <laughs> but it did actually go via a deflection. So was it as bad? I don't know. Uh, at the same time, you know, they didn't appeal. Like You're not supposed to walk if no one appeals. If no, one, no, if the, if the bowling team doesn't think you're out. Why are you supposed to leave? Oh, actually, guys, I hit that. You didn't notice, but I hit it. That's that's rubbish. Like nobody, no one's suggesting that you should have to walk if they don't know that you're out. It certainly became the, the talking point overnight. Certainly, yeah, all the coverage. It was like it happened later on. It's like, oh, we got ourselves a story. So the, the the international response was pretty interesting. There, we got a walker here. We got a walking story. Tell your story walking, about walking. <laughs> Walker, Texas Ranger. Certainly not. Um, you know, you go back to the 2003 World Cup when Adam Gilchrist walked when mm. he wasn't given to that mm. bad pad decision. That would just not happen in modern career. Right. I mean, absolutely. It's like the battle on Hoth. They've since brought down all of the walkers. <laughs> I don't even know where you're at now. So get some sleep, seriously. Um, so... <laughs> Next day, we get back. Day two. Let's get back to the cricket. Mm. Day two. Uh, and, and Hanscom resumes on 74. He struggled on night one to mm-hmm. hit the second, the, the new, well, not, yeah, it was the second new ball, wasn't it? He was struggling to that. And he, and he grappled early, just like he had in Adelaide. But I find that almost the most endearing part of his um, his character. It's that he does not look good early, but he seems to find a way through it. And he doesn't get himself out. And he puts himself into a good position to prosper later. Yeah, he doesn't look perturbed by not looking good early. And I think that's the key is that, you know, mm. most batsmen struggle early in, in innings. You know, Ricky Ponting used to be a terrible starter sometimes. You know, anybody does. But some of them cover it up and pretend that they're not struggling. And, and you know, occasionally they do a sort of Kawaja from last summer where they just come out and cream them from ball one. Mm. But that's pretty unusual. Uh, but, so the fact that he's able to, you know, as a, as a new player, he's certainly playing for his spot in his first couple of tests because people are calling for Nick Maddinson's head because he hasn't made runs in three innings. So if Hanscom had been the same, you know, it would have been the same sort of uh, chorus. But he's able to just keep calm. And I think that's his biggest asset. And that's why he might be able to do something in India if you can get a big Smith Hanscom partnership in some inning somewhere. We might have some chance of getting a total. Yeah, winning a Test match or making something over two hundred. It'll, yeah. it'll be a glorious day. Oh, what, what a, a day! Holiday. Red letter day. Uh, Peter Hanscom resumed on seventy on sixty four rather, and he, I think he where he showed his broader worth. Smith was loco on day two. He was swinging from the swinging from his hip. He was what? He was weird. Was it was a weird way to resume his. Well, I mean, particularly on day two when um, they yeah. could. You can you get away with that when you're well over 100. When you come back on day two, don't get me wrong, no criticism there. But Hanscom had to play a different sort of role after Smith's inevitable somewhat demise, and he, that was batting with the lower order. And that's again something that batting five or six, Steve War made an art form out of this. It's it's the idea that you can you can you know keep your head together mm. when when others around you maybe aren't. And that's certainly well, what happened with the Australia lower middle order. And, you, and that really now started with Nick Maddinson at number six, which you shouldn't be talking about your number six as a lower middle order. In great terms bowler of, though, sent down yeah. like a couple of great overs. Well, 
Well, well Nick Maddinson is usually has traditionally been a number three or a batted at the top of the list for New South Wales as well. But then so. he's sort of dropped into the middle order as sure. well. He's opened a lot in T20 cricket, but then he's played through the middle order in first class. He's, he's been one of those career floaters. I, I guess my point is, is that at number six, he's a specialist, whereas yeah. we've had a, an all-rounder batting there for the last couple of years. Yes. So, but, but Maddinson doesn't feel like a specialist batting there because of the way he was dismissed in that first innings, which was a, I don't know, the, the, the best, the, the most generous way of describing it is he was trying to let the ball go and at the last minute fended. But I think in reality, it was just a, it was just a waft outside the off stump from a man who's rather nervous about uh, trying to get bat on ball early in an innings. He was on one at the time, and that meant after two test innings, he only had one run to his name. And, and you know, that, that it, was, it was unflattering at best. It's awkward. And then when you start bowling and conceding runs and, and people are saying, well, he's actually now in, in net yeah. negative That's territory because right. he's, he's conceded more than he's scored. There must be quite a few of those, though, when you think about it. I think even like Glenn McGrath and Shane Warner are net negative because they would have conceded more runs than... Than they made. Than they made. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But then, but, then but what's a wicket worth? You know, is the wicket yes. worth their uh, their career average? You know, is a wicket worth twenty five runs? Philosophical debate for a time. Just running honest thesis out of that. Yeah, is it worth the batting average of the batsman dismissed? Maybe is the wicket worth that many runs? But people are certainly asking about it. Uh, Nick Trainer on Twitter uh, tweeted in that exactly that question: Why Maddinson over Patterson? Um, a lot of people talking about Curtis Patterson as a good composed batsman who should be in down the order. Um, well, when... well, Patterson certainly has a, has a case to be made. They, ha- they are taking the same twelve to Melbourne, and I mm. think they're backing Maddinson in. They were urged by. I think Trevor you have Holmes. to, don't you? Like you can't dump him after three innings. No, no, you can't. And we'll talk more about his second innings as we go through. But maybe he, shouldn't it... have picked him in the first place. I could make that argument. But having done it, you've got to at least give him some opportunity. And, and they said they will. I mean, at that, that press conference a couple of Sundays ago when they named the twelve for Adelaide, they said we are going to, you know, like, use the cliche, pick and stick here. So you can't expect they're going to revert back on that within two tests. It would be. And especially when two of the three have gone so well, too. Like, they're, they've got some credit in the bank, and I think they'll be given the opportunity, especially having won yeah. both of those test matches, the old don't change your winning team philosophy, sure. which is obviously a very big part of uh, the way Australian sides have been selected over many generations. So, Why but, wouldn't you pick and stick? It rhymes. I mean, yeah, people well, love stuff that rhymes. You're always like public safety things. They're like, oh, if we can somehow get this to rhyme or maybe alliteration, people are definitely going to do it. Don't be a fool. My helmet is cool. <laughs> Remember that one in primary school do, when, when the bike helmets came in? Definitely left a lasting impression on me. I feel pretty cool every time I snap one on. Mm-hmm. Who did look foolish? I love doing those segues. Foolish oh, nice. looked, was Matthew, Matthew Wade when he played a shot that gave the impression he was Joe Root at the top of the bounce, but the problem is he's not Joe Root. Uh, and, and, he's he, not. And, and, and he and he and he edged behind, and, and there's another player who's brought back into the side mainly for his ability to make runs at Test level, but struggled there. Um, before you knew it, it was uh, Josh Hazelwood and, and Mitchell Stark in the in the you know, I guess the two most prominent bowlers who can bat a wee bit, who also edged off to yep. um, Shafiq at first slip. Amir picked up both of those, and it was five for fifty-seven they had lost from Smith mm. through to that stage, and at, and at um, eight for three eighty, the a lot of the good work that had been done on on day one, it looked like it had been undid, as it were, and they looked like they were going to be all that for less than 400, but then um, began what was a fascinating sidebar to this entire test match, Nathan Gary Lyon. Nice, Gary. Two words that have summed up this test match. Yeah, beautiful, isn't it? New South Wales off-spinner becomes a cult hero in Queensland on a pitch known for pace bowlers and and big hundreds. Um, Somehow, yeah, the batting got it started. I think Matthew Wade's crap chat got it started as well. I think Um, think, think there was was plenty of Facebook smack around this after the... 
after the Adelaide yeah. test with the nice Gary stuff. And I think that people were just up for this. That, right. That, for whatever reason, this hit a quarter. I mean, you know, there's probably... A, so probably... every time Nathan Lyon bowls a ball, if you're not familiar with this, Matthew Wade says, nice Gary, and the stump mics pick it up. Now, someone's edited all of these together into a, a, a compilation and it yeah. goes for about an hour. So, I mean, that's how many times I, I actually think it's, he's said no, it. No, no, the, the, the compilation, it's, it's one n- nice Gary Oh, just over and over, over and over again. For oh, an I want to see all of them. I want someone yeah. to get all of the but, nice But it's Garys. a modern day bowling Shane, you see, which yep. obviously had such currency in the late 90s with Ian Healy and ultimately Adam Gilchrist mm-hmm. both re- repeated that at will, yep. and you, as you would, because Shane Warne was a, was a fine bowler. But Areas not, warning also. N- yeah, yeah, areas warning, yep. indeed. Um, which is still working. Still, <laughs> still, still part has, of his life still has great areas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful Instagram areas. Shane Check Warne. the comments on his Instagram yeah. feed. Just a lot of a lot of areas work around there. Um, but, uh, pineapple by tea, etc. But uh, they put on 49, Nathan Lyon and Jackson Bird, and, mm-hmm. and tw- Lyon picking up 29 of those. There were hooks, there were pulls, yep. there were drives. There were there were, there was wild roars in the crowd, and they managed to force Australia up to 429. And that was a you know that was a, a far more commanding position. And, and of course Jackson Bird, the, the man who missed out on the first Test squad, according to, Rod, according to Rob Marsh, because of his batting. <laughs> Remember that? What a marvelous time that was, uh, by the way. About a month and a half ago, you know, life was simpler then. It was before Donald Trump was elected president. Rod Marsh was the chairman of selectors. Yep. You know, we had a middle order that Callum Ferguson was getting a start in, and Jackson Bird's batting de- determined whether he got a run. Yeah, and, and then at the Gabba, he plays. One of the most perfect hook shots I've ever seen. Yeah. Off his eyebrows for six. Never mind. Just you know, over backward square. Swivel clunk. You know, it actually looked like a batsman's shot. Whereas Nathan Lyons' ones were, were those sort of crouchy, weird, like get a bit low and then kind of foot the thing over your shoulder. But he was still swatting them away for four. Yeah, I felt sorry for Wahab and Muhammad Amir who took four wickets apiece and who were both really quite outstanding on that second morning that much of their good work, as I said before, was effectively undone. And, they, and, yep. and, and that did change the, 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 the tenor of the, of the day. And, and it was Not almost the inevitable. runs, but also the time. Because it yeah, meant that... Pakistan would have been out there getting set in daylight and then then have been able to tackle the evening session, whereas really, as it was, they went straight into the night. That's right, because they took an early an early dinner break, if memory serves. Or it was around that time that Pakistan yeah. had to come out, and they never really stood a chance uh, once they once they were batting under lights with the pink ball. Australia's fast bowlers, um, Josh Hazelwood, Mitchell Stark, and, and Jackson Bird took three wickets apiece, and it was an absolute demolition job. Really, at one stage they were eight for sixty-seven. Pretty much all of their high-profile bats were nicked off, uh, you know, from the start. Really, yeah. Baba, the prodigy, mm-hmm. uh, he didn't last long. Hazelwood picked up him. Uh, you know, Eunice was out first ball. Mizbar was taken by. Jackson Bird only on a couple. Asad mm-hmm. Shafiq, he did so well later on. He edged to Usman Khawaja in his slips. A really good catch, actually. Yeah, he took a few good catches, Khawaja. He's um, suddenly come good on that front. Yeah, Sammy Aslam, who's a, a real talent. He, his 100-ball resistance uh, ended when he was on 22. But I think Yeah, but he balls, looked great. He was a highlight yeah, of the was. first innings for me. Um, with carnage all around him. What is he, 21 years old? I think, I think. he's 20, yeah. Um, quality, quality player. And he was, what, sixth or seventh wicket to fall? He, he yep. saw all the rest of the top order go. And he just kept leaving. And that was the difference, is that everybody else played outside, well outside their off stump. You know, Eunice Khan walked outside his off stump as if he was going to the shops, you know, and then nicked the ball <laughs> that he met along the way. Um, they were all fishing outside off except for Sammy Aslam, who was prepared to leave the ball. Yeah, and after a couple of the bowlers uh, were taken as well, it's 8 for 67, and there was some time to go that could have easily been rock and rolled on, on night two, and it would have been a different test match entirely. But uh, Safraz Ahmed, who, who's a player who's made runs against Australia before, of course, in the UAE a couple of years ago. Love him. Uh, yeah. he, he combined with mostly Mohamed Amir, who made 21, but batted for about two hours while Safraz accumulated for an unbeaten 59. And, I mean, it didn't 
change the game dramatically. But getting up to 142 wasn't for nothing as far as just making this, at least um, at least forcing Australia to have to make a decision about the follow-on. Well, also, I think... Because they definitely would have made the follow-on had they bowled them out. Yeah, on. had they bowled them out on, on nice in that evening session, they wouldn't have... It just wouldn't have been possible to not do it. Exactly. Um, the fact that it pushed it out to sort of 55 overs or whatever it was, um, batted for a while, and then the next day and the Australians could see that it was damn hot and they were going to have to come out and start. They'd have to start their bowling innings in that heat. Um, and I think it just gave Pakistan a little bit of heart as well because Safra's really got on top for a while. Like sure it, did, yeah. You know, he actually looked completely in control. Amir looked unruffled. And, and Safra's is so... he's. He's irresistible, you know. He's got such a, a kind of bubbly personality and, he, and he's energetic and he's playing ridiculous shots and he's, you know, uh, uh, he's, he just cracks me up. He, he resembles, he's a Pakistani Mick Malloy in the face. Like, <laughs> he's got a, a startling resemblance um, to our, our now cricket radio uh, colleague, part of, the, part of the cricket commentary fraternity, Mick Malloy. Um, but, you know, he, he, he just gave him a bit of energy back so that when they came out and bowled, you know, and they bowled with some purpose. Australia was, was batting for a declaration, but Pakistan, I thought, actually did reasonably well to keep them to about five and over when the Aussies were really looking to tee off. I mean, David yeah, Warner they- came out going T20, you know, and then hold out for 12. Oh, they did force issues. I mean, the Australian bowlers who finished off with three wickets apiece, as mentioned before, I mean, they would have thought, you know, put the, put the, put the heels up and, and chill out. And they were basically able to do that for, for a session and a bit. I think they batted for 39 and a half overs or whatever it was before Smith called them in. I won't go into too much depth about the declaration batting. I'm not a huge fan of that. But needless to say, David Warner didn't last long. Matt Renshaw nicked off to an absolute screamer and there was mm-hmm. a, a couple of half centuries in there too for Kawaja and Smith, although two yeah. half centuries with a, a little pressure as you can imagine, in Test cricket. Nick Maddinson um, w- w- was also dismissed cheaply for four after um, coming out and doing what they've all said was the team thing. And I, and I have a bit of sympathy for this. He did come out and try and hit every ball he faced, which is what his job was to do. The easy thing would have been to have came out and batted conservatively, knowing the declaration was coming. So even though he's yeah. gone out cheaply again, I think we can give him a leave pass on this one. It's interesting, isn't it? That, so Adam Voges last summer, I remember him saying that he uh, he took the opposite approach with Mitchell Marsh he when they were near Marsh a declaration. To, yeah, he yeah. told Mitchell Marsh to get down the other end. End and not face yeah. a ball because he didn't want him to get out and I, have I think the it pressure was, on it. Where were we? I think maybe Hobart? Melbourne, Hobart, Melbourne, possibly. One of those Either way, yeah, I agree. I remember it well. He he, uh, he said very clearly that he didn't want his state teammate, who he's very close to, to be exposed to selection speculation and didn't want him yeah, to. Yeah, because he'd got out for two trying to have a slog. Yeah, um, that's right. and that's exactly what happened with Madison. It, it was very near the break as well, so he would have only had. 10, 20 minutes to bat. Yeah, um, I think yeah. I think Wade faced about five balls. So right. it, we were in, we were inside the last ten minutes when yeah. Madison was dismissed. So he could have batted, you know, just knocked the ball around for ten minutes, and probably no one would have noticed. But so to be fair to Madison, in, in the context of a pretty ordinary first two Test matches, I, I can yeah. you know I, I feel for him there. But maybe he was just so obviously trying to do the team thing and make it seem that he was doing the team thing that uh, it actually worked against him. Because maybe the the sensible batting approach would have been get a single, get Pete Hanscom on strike. He was on thirty seven off yep. twenty balls whatever it was, give him the strike. He's a fine attacking T20 player as well. And he'd been out there for a while, you know, give him the strike and let him uh, take responsibility for upping the ante. Ultimately, Australia left Pakistan 490 for the most unlikeliest of victories. It Just would a been, cheeky 490. It would have been the, the biggest chase in the history of Test cricket. We hear By that, a we long hear, margin. We, yeah, we hear chases. that a fair bit. 418 is the most ever. And, and you know, that, that, that stat, you know, they'll, they'll need to chase more than anyone ever has before. But but it still cops some criticism after the fact whether Steve Smith needed to declare when he did whether he could have batted for longer and likewise whether they should have even been forced to follow on. Yeah, so a lot of there's a lot of Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking going on here. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, they should have, you know, when, when they had him down, they should have been forced to follow on. 
who's to say if they'd enforced a follow-on, this a similar sort of innings wouldn't have occurred. Pakistan wouldn't have set Australia five, you know, so a couple of hundred on the last day, and Australia would have been cooked because they'd spent two days in the field. Yeah, and it's not like me to jump to the defence for these decisions straight away, but I think there is some some evidence to look at here. First of all, day three was extremely hot, and yep. and, and setting your bowls straight out after 52 overs in would have been 35 or so degrees for the for the hot part of the day. That that has an effect. Um, the fact that we've got two Test matches back to back in Melbourne mm-hmm. and Sydney coming up in less than a week. Um, the fact that uh, there was so much time left in the game, they bowled out Pakistan early yeah. on day three. The fact that they, and, and even they... a declaration. I mean, 490. I mean, a team has never lost after um, setting aside 490. So to right. say that it was conservative, of course, he could have taken more time out of the game. But in modern cricket, earning that extra day off, earning that fifth day um, to relax and not have to worry about you know getting ready. The way they get ready, they don't they don't go to the pub till one in the morning and you know dust themselves off and play some cricket like it was in the good old days. That this is a an, an elaborate process yeah. to get yourself up to bowl each day, particularly as a quick. And I think that trying to provide themselves with one extra day was perfectly worthwhile. And trying to bowl at night, the, the evidence we've seen in, in, uh, in day-night test cricket with the pink ball is that bowling after dark does provide a significant advantage. Now, that, sam- that sample didn't continue this time. It wasn't as easy um, the second time around. Far from it. And we'll go into depth as to why that was. But based on the available evidence for Steve Smith, I think he's been stitched up a bit here. Well, absolutely. And, and particularly, that you know, as we said, they bozoed Pakistan you know, 8 for mm. 60 on the, on that second night. Why wouldn't you say let's have a crack at them on the third night hopefully do the same thing you know either wrap it up that evening or early on the fourth day and be done with it um and they really could have i mean they could have effectively like won by hundreds and hundreds at that point um and the fact is that they were faced with one of the greatest rearguard batting performances in cricket history that's not for nothing no absolutely that can happen it will very rarely happen but sometimes a team just produces a performance that is outstanding now that doesn't mean that the other team didn't play well the most significant thing that happened on night three apart from losing a couple of wickets was the ridiculous crowd behavior in front of us there and what's what amounted to bay 13 like the old days really there were the beer snakes there was a sculling out of people's shoes did you know that was the thing the the, the The shoey thing i mean I, i gather it's a oh absolutely there's a one of the pubs we visited in Brisbane, they were they were serving drinks out of gumboots, uh, meaning right. like children's gumboots at the bar. You could buy an official shoe. I, I don't follow motorsport, but I think it has to do with one of our motorsports. Oh, stars. it's become popular. Who is it? Yeah, it's um, Daniel Ricciardo. Daniel Ricciardo um, likes to do a shoey, but it, the shoey definitely predates Daniel Ricciardo. So, okay. if you're not familiar with the shoey, uh, it, it's it's a it's a cultural uh, phenomenon <laughs> in which uh, generally a young male uh, demonstrates his primacy for the herd by uh, tipping an alcoholic beverage into an item of footwear and then drinking it out of that item. I think it's supposed to display a sort of disregard for hygiene, a, a general sort of toughness of demeanour, a, a lack of fear of, a, of social norms. And in doing so, uh, can attribute alpha dog status to the drinker of the shoe. Well, when, when the police gathered around were effectively joining in, well, not joining in, shooing as such. But, it would but have been great. That, that would have been the most Australian moment ever. <laughs> like six cops all doing a shoeing. <laughs> But they won't get involved, they, were, they certainly won't kick anyone out until they started the beer snake. Oh, I can't do not, snake. do not start the beer snake. But anyway, alas, you can't, it, stop, it, the that, you can't stop the snake. You can't you know, build the snake and it will grow, as the song goes. So, um, <laughs> as that old philosopher 
that old KCL philosopher, that bloke at, at Cardiff sang last year. Anyway, so um, so the long and the short was that they, they came back with eight wickets in hand, but we didn't expect for the life of us we'd have a day five. Eight wickets was no. like, yeah, there might be a bit of weather about, as they say, a few golf ball-sized hail and bits yeah. and bobs. You know. as, as someone once said, uh, how did they measure hailstones before, <laughs> before they had golf, golf balls? <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, it's definitely the size of something indeterminate. <laughs> but um, it did hail a wee bit, and we did have a massive thunderstorm in Brisbane. But by the side of Invented golf balls was like, oh my god, this is awesome! It's just the size of big hail. <laughs> Especially when in Queensland and the Test match is going on, it's Absolutely. always golf ball size at the at the, at the Wool and Gabba. And the newsreaders can roll out that uh, you know that tape that they always like to do. Our power lines were brought down, trees were uprooted, and uh, cars were damaged. With golf ball sized yeah. hail, there you go. You should be in the news, Jeff. Um, now, so they came back. So Azar Ali was batting with Yunus Khan. Uh, he faced nineteen balls the previous night. Useless Khan. I shouldn't say that he batted. I took to I took a set against him during the summer because I thought, why is he still going around? I, I think he should have retired during the English summer. Yeah, during the English summer, I took right. a bit of a set against him. Then he made two hundred. Yeah. So um, so Just to I, stick it up. So, yeah. so I was in a bit of that mood again as day four commenced, and he made sixty five. I'm not going to say it was the most um, most elegant sixty five. I'm not going to say it was the most um, well-controlled 65, hooking at will, and, and just defied logic. But, hey, he was there. He made the runs. What can you say? Even though he got out reverse sweeping, he's reverse swept since the start of his career, even before it was in fashion. So I yeah. don't think we can begrudge him too much. No, I mean, the hook shots were the really weird ones. And yeah. he, I don't think he connected one of them. Um, no, he he top-edged top one over one. leg slip yeah. for a single. But as, when he was playing the, the fuller stuff, he actually started to look quite good. Now, when he came out, it was late on the third night, he looked Absolutely awful. Josh Hazelwood was giving him a, a working over. Lucky not to get a pair, wasn't he? He got beaten several he's times. Ne- yeah, he's never made a pair in Test yeah. cricket. Um, and and he was, the ball was ripping past the inside edge over the stumps. So Hazelwood had three full overs at him. And I was, I think he was, was he batting with Asad Shafiq? I was thinking, like, why doesn't... Asad bat- Ali. Sorry, yeah, Asad Ali at the time. Um I was thinking, why doesn't he kind of... He needs to shepherd him. He mm. needs to keep him away from Hazelwood because he's the most dangerous bowler for Eunice at this point. Um, and they didn't manage to do that. Eunice had to face a good three overs from Hazelwood and every ball I expected his wicket. So so we, we went through this process on day four where each time a wicket fell, we're like, oh, well, that'll be the one. Yeah, that's it. That, that's, that's, it. that's the thing that gets us to, to a day five not occurring. So, I mean, Azar Ali batted really well for 71. He barely made a run to begin with. He took 40, 51 minutes to get off the mark uh, to, to resume his innings on, on day four. But finally was was out for 71. And Mizbar came and went fairly quickly. It was four for 165. And when Eunice fell to that reverse, sorry, I'm losing my words here, five for 173 when Eunice finally was out reverse sweeping. And that's uh-huh. when we booked the studio here. Yeah, we, literally. We, we, we literally booked this studio for 24 hours ago for this exact time slot, thinking, well, there's no way. Not with the bowlers ahead of them, not with, you know, Safraz, not with an extended final session, not batting under under lights for at least two hours, maybe three, uh, with an extra half hour available to Steve Smith after that rain delay and, and, and all the rest. We were just con- convinced that was that was what we were doing. Oh, there was no way it could have been any different. You know, you were down to the, the wicketkeeper and, and the last recognised batsman who'd uh, been pretty poor in the first innings and had a pretty miserable tour of New Zealand before that. You know, Asad Shafiq was in off a pretty shocking run coming into this innings. Sure, yeah, and, and, and he didn't look particularly convincing in the first in the first dig either. So Assad Shafiq first joined with Safraz for 47, and that, that was after Smith dropped Safraz. So it still felt, even when Safraz went hour and a half to go, like Australia will surely 
surely finish this off. Mm-hmm. Then um, Muhammad Amir came out and made 90, well, they put on 92. The knee was looking good in that inning. Yeah, he was looking particularly good, as was his as was his slap over mid-wicket. His cover drives were delightful. Everything outside the off stump, he basically just sort of guarded off stump. He left a bit, you know, he got out of the way of short balls to some degree. Um, but if there was a bit of width for him, he just carved over gully, over yeah. point, and, 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 and got and, away with it again and, few, and again. Yeah, and a few more controlled strokes yeah. on, the, on the carpet as well, and, and really uh, exercised Mitchell Stark, who wanted to kill him at the time, which I quite enjoyed as well. Yeah, that was nice. There was a little, you know, that real kind of, you know, Mitchell Stark giving the theatrical sort of finger to the ear. Like, what, what was that? What was that, mate? What did you say? What did you what say? Did you say? <laughs> Come over here and say that, you know. But uh, it went on until uh, Amir was was finally uh, dismissed on 48. So he missed out on his first career yeah. half century. Which but it was, was his top score. It was his top score, not for nothing. I'm sure we'll see plenty more of him with the bat in this series. Then Wahab Riaz, who, you know, not known for it, let's be honest. Wahab Riaz is not known for much more than giving it a wallop. Uh, and he did. He swung at everything. He either had these really deliberate leaves, which I really yep. enjoyed. You know, the quite pronounced leave when he was uh-huh. like, like Justin Langer, way over yep. top of the or he was trying to put him on the moon, and, and yeah. like both occurred. <laughs> Versions of both occurred at different stages through that um, through that cameo. Uh, he put on sixty six, but in between times, Assad was uh, made his way to one hundred. It was an incredible last over. They did take the extra half an hour. Umpire yep. Gould um, it forced them to do so. Australian management weren't thrilled about that as, as it turned yeah, out. Which, after is, as far as I understand it, isn't within the rules. You're only supposed to extend if one of the captains requests it. Um, so, but, well, but yeah, it, it's odd, isn't it? It feels as though there, there was there was definitely a discussion had earlier on. A according to Steve Smith, in the session. But whether at that exact juncture um, they said, are we going to go or not, Gould was very determined to go, yeah. and, and, and so they went. So it Obviously seems like... Obviously, just, just wanted to come and get on the gas. Yeah, just wanted to, just wanted to have, not want to have a day five either. I, you know, I can respect that. It's, at least he's being honest and true to himself. His own, what they call, he, it's his own truth. Sure, but like a 1pm start, you know, like it's not that bad. Not that prohibitive, <laughs> is it? It's a real drinking man starting time, isn't it? Like, you know, those, those guys who want to go out and uh, get full, like umpire Gould, if that's yeah, that umpire, the case. Yeah, umpire Gould just doing it. Shoey in the stands. <laughs> you know. Maybe even before. Just jumping in the pool. There's a lunchtime. There's a, a lunchtime soaker before he has to go out and officiate the test match. It's yeah. totally plausible at the one o'clock starting time. Umpire Ian pooled. Yes. Well, oh, we haven't even talked about the pool either. Blimey. How, yes. how, how have we got this far into the podcast not talked about the pool? It was very. Let's just do that now. That, that, it, that, oh, that was that, fantastic. That, yeah. I'm, I'm all for it. Swimming pools are test cricket. Let's make it happen. It, it felt weird when you saw it when you first got there, but I think as the test match went on, um, it definitely added something. It was definitely part of that Nathan Lyon, Gary Lyon, Gazza mm-hmm. stuff. That I think the pool. Um, brought that out even more. And daylight right. cricket definitely suits Brisbane. Yeah, and it suits it suits looseness. Well, know, like that, that, it, that was effectively what I was saying. It yeah. suits Brisbane. Right. They, they, they love to get full up here. Um, but, I mean, you know, it was just such a good crowd the first couple of days as well. The, the Thursday was huge. The, mm. the Friday was big and the Saturday was decent. Broke records. Um, it, was the, it was the highest non-Ashes test crowd they've ever had here. Yeah, um, and, and it felt like it, you know, walking in as opposed to last year where they they closed off half the grandstand and all the upper tiers were closed because... There was they didn't want to have to hire security guards to man empty stands. Um, this year, you know, all those upper decks were were pretty full before play on day one. Uh, it was exciting. There was actually atmosphere. It remains to be seen whether it will still be that way in ten years' time if they keep doing day night <laughs> tests. Um, but at least for this first one, it was. It was big. No, I, I did enjoy that, and I guess the, uh, the 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 crowd who was left there for Assad's hundred. It was just an extraordinary moment in the oh. last over of the day. The first ball of that over, yep. slaying through uh, backward point, wasn't it? Or yep. more, just ahead of point, actually, and, uh-huh. and and coming back for that third run, which at the time was just a glorious moment. Um, and I think we're all I mean, you were down there next to the Pakistan uh, race, and, yes. and and they and they couldn't have been more elated. But oh, they yeah. were they were just delighted. You know, Miss Bar was beaming, sort of standing outside yeah. the rooms. You know, I shot a little video down there of. Their reaction and they were they were just so happy for him you know that, that they'd got something meaningful out of this uh, out of what was a really parlous situation 
And they also uh, and, and they also had to question after the fact, regrettably, whether he should have taken the third run. Yeah. Because it did expose Wahab to facing five balls in the last over when they were almost all the way through to start. And, and, and it sort of mucks around Wahab's approach because before that he was he was breezy, you know, he was carefree, he mm. was confident. In the last over he was like, oh, I've got to be careful here, I've got to sort of cover up. And he just sort of tried to, you know, push a, a Jackson Bird delivery away, maybe find a single it's or something. It's the first time he potted at anything. Yeah. He, he was yeah. full-blooded strokes where he was letting the ball go. That's the right. first time he actually saw that that type of defence deployed and, and yeah, as you said he nicked behind and that exposed Yasir Shah who sure enough first ball clipped through mid-wicket like he was Mark Waugh and um, just, just, to, just to end the madness of the day really wasn't it it was a, it was a, it was a very special evening it ended up going for three hours so the schedule close of yeah. play at Brisbane was 8 o'clock uh-huh. we went to 5 past 10 so yeah, absolutely that, that proves to me my point from two weeks ago on the podcast that you can play later in these day night tests and, and, yep. and, and not focus on because I think that if you get a full session with the lights beaming and it actually dark outside right. not with Stand in the artificial light. I think that brings something else to it. I think that you know, even more than what we have when it's just forty-five minutes to an hour. If, like if, those, are, if those are the playing conditions and everyone's uh, exposed to the same conditions, that's fine. I think it was really unfair on Pakistan. I mean, they had to bat three three nights under lights. Australia had to bat one. But that last one, you know, that's that that, that uh, night four session. There was forty-two overs yeah. in that session, which which made, which made, made the achievement all, all the more considerable. So when they, they came back, one hundred and eighty-three runs in the session. Well, yeah, when, 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 <laughs> it was. <laughs> Ever seen it, worth that? Well, and, and it created this situation where we arrived on day five with 108 to get, and you know you're watching all the old tapes of Alan Border and, and Jeff Thompson in, in Melbourne against England in 1981. You yep. got the you got the vision of Edgbaston in 2005. You got yeah, where they needed 107 with two wickets to go which on the last day, 108 and two wickets in in, in in Brisbane. So it was this lovely parallel, and you know we all love this. The, 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 the scrap on the last day, the Tim uh-huh. May and Craig McDermott partnership in Adelaide in January of 1993. Yep. I mean, they, these things are we we can identify with it because we can remember it. Yeah, and when you uh, you know, I think Dirk Nana said this in commentary. When you give a tail ender something to play for, you know, suddenly they they seem to get a lot better at batting. You know, they they're less likely to go out there and be loose and just try to wallop everything over the fence because it's like, well, you guys could actually win a test match with the bat. Very quickly, they became the twentieth side ever make four hundred in the fourth innings. There was strike management. There were edges. There were uppercuts. There were plays and misses. There was roars and chanting as they passed the four hundred and four that Australia made in Leeds in nineteen forty eight. Famously, of course. Mm-hmm. With a chase three down, they passed the 417 made in the centenary test in the fourth innings. They passed the, passed the 418 the West Indies made to defeat Australia in 2003. That's significant because that's the biggest ever successful chase. And as they stormed into the top five, we Jeff, we thought they were there. We thought this was happening. We, indeed, we, we started readying ourselves to run downstairs just as Asad Shafiq finally fell after one of the truly great fourth innings hundreds. I, I was pretty sure, and I think you'll back me up on this yesterday, I was consistently saying they're still going to lose. They're, they're going to lose closely. You, mo- you moved over, though. There was a time I was hoping, I was definitely yeah, hoping that it would you, happen. You moved over to think they were, you know, I think we both did. I was very conservative, too, until until I got within 50, and I thought, with two wickets in hand, they're, they're a real show. I just I just always felt all day, I thought, at some point, there are so many deliveries required to be bold to get these runs, that at some point a chance will come. And, well, as, but, and as soon as the chance comes, the second will follow, because there's been so much tension and drama, and, and Rahad Ali at 11 won't be able to bad. offer much. Well, but the, the chance did come, and Matthew Wade did drop it. So yeah. it's, not, it's not for nothing that it was the drop catch. And, he, he and there was the also the LB that was overturned. And he missed the stumping off line earlier in the <laughs> test match, which I feel um, obliged to mention as well. There was an LBW yep. overturned 
send-off last year, albeit a, a poor decision from umpire Illingworth that was going considerably well, miles over the start. Yeah, but imagine if they'd had no reviews left. You know, that would have been there would have been yeah. this great injustice, this great sour taste in the mouth that you know Yasser had been given out to one that was clearing middle stump by about a metre um, yeah. and hit him outside the line. Sure thing. You no, know. No, it, it, it was proof of the technology for all the grief at cops is has a very important place in our in our modern game. Yeah, because it meant that the genuine result was arrived at. Um, Pakistan weren't robbed. There wasn't a like nope. we was robbed campaign. Absolutely and, not. and Australia got the win and actually deserved it. Yeah, so Steve Smith said he was feeling quite anxious when they had 60 to get. That's when Nathan Lyon nearly took a screamer mm. um, with his arms you know, at full stretch like a, like a soccer goalkeeper. And Jackson Bird didn't quite get fingertips on the ball coming back at him, which would have run out Yassir at the non-strikers end. So all this yeah. stuff was going against Steve Smith until Mitchell Stark from around the wicket bowled an absolute snorter at Asad Shafiq that came spearing at his throat and finally the ball shouldered into the gully and the match was all but over. Yeah, David Warner, a couple of hands out, managed to claim it. Um, and, you know, then there was that weird run out of, of Yassir <laughs> Shah just to finish it off. So he's, got, he's like, all right, we've got 40 to get right to the other end. It's all on me. I've got to do the scoring. Has a, has a big sort of swipe at one, doesn't get it cleanly. And he was so annoyed at having not got runs off a ball on his pads that he was just sort of looked at his batting partner and, and didn't realise he was two metres out of his ground. And Steve Smith at slip throws down the stumps. I loved the um, response to the crowd by that stage we were down there with them uh, to Yassir walking off when they were just chanting we are so proud of you we are so proud of you we are. it was just a, it was a it was spine tingling stuff incredible what a response to it though I mean they've, they've lost the game of cricket yep. and you know that should be where the, the supporters are most desolate but they, they that was when they expressed the most pride I think it was just like they felt something yeah they, they knew something special had occurred and I know you know maybe some listeners might think that we're we're going over the top in, in pumping up Pakistan so much but the point that I would make that's really stood out to me is that Muhammad Amir made his best test score. Asad Shafiq made his best test score. Yassir Shah made his best test score. Wahab Riaz made his second best score. So those four all overperformed so dramatically, given their careers to date, they all brought the absolute best that they had. And in doing so, they very nearly did something that hasn't been done in 140 years of test cricket. You know, to chase down a score of that magnitude would have been an absolutely astonishing feat. Uh, and to get within 40 runs of 490 is is as astonishing. Yeah, it, it was nearly uh, nearly the, the, the most significant test victory of all time, or near the most substantial one, but it was still it was still pretty amazing. And it really made the summer in terms of what we have coming up in Melbourne and in Sydney uh, for, yes. Smith, for Steve oh, Smith. Excitement now. I mean, how yeah. much more intention and, and energy is there around this going into Melbourne? Absolutely. I mean, for Steve Smith, it was relief uh, most for the most part. Misbah, he said himself to rhyme again, Drew Belief from the uh, from the performance, saying that he mm-hmm. thinks they can now win in Melbourne and win in Sydney. He didn't feel like that was the case after. Well, they've the got first a bunch innings. of batsmen who've made runs now, yep. um, and uh, you know we've seen the pitch in Melbourne for that one day game the other week against New Zealand. That would suit Pakistan down to the ground. You it think was so slower, it, slow paced, a bit low, a bit sticky. It was slow of... last year too. You might recall. Yeah. Or it was certainly slow on day one. It held up a little stodgy. bit. Stodgy. So, yeah, yeah, stodgy. That's right. Yeah. So they picked the same squad for Melbourne, which I think is interesting. So Maddinson's retained his spot. We won't go yep. on about this, but um, he no, the right same twelve. I think you yeah. gotta, you got to give him a, got to give the boy another run. And they have also noted that um, Mitchell Marsh may be brought back into the side, or a, an all rounder who bowls fast. So Steve Smith, uh, sorry, um, Darren Lehman, um, effectively saying uh, that if they want an all rounder, they'll be going to Mitchell Marsh. Um, to, if they feel like the, any of the bowlers don't come up uh-huh. after a pretty hefty workload in the second dig.
Okay. As for Pakistan, I mean, as you say, I think they are now um, cherry ripe for for another good performance in Melbourne after what they finished off with here. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, I think this really does um, bring a whole other dimension to the summer. Had Australia rolled through Pakistan in three days, we'd yeah. be saying similar to what we did against the West Indies last year. Like, there's a degree of inevitability about mm-hmm. Boxing Day, whereas mm-hmm. you know this will they'll, they'll just about pack out the MCG on Boxing Day now. Maybe not the full hundred thousand, but they'll go you know three quarters of the way there. This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, ABC Grandstand. Welcome back. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We've got Brittany Carter with us here to talk Women's Big Bash League again. Hello, Brittany. How are you? Hi, guys. Well, thank you. Good. So this weekend we had games across four different venues, Saturday-Sunday games, as it were. Well, actually, one was a Friday-Saturday, but they uh, were, were, were four to due to rain. We'll come to that. But we started off in Bendigo, and I thought that was probably the, the pick of the litter in terms of the round with the Hurricanes doing the double over the Renegades, Jeff. And uh, it was a very Hobart way to win two matches, wasn't it? Yeah, only just doing the double. Last ball wins in both games. Uh, one of the, the second one was a super over, which we haven't seen a lot of in the women's comp. So, um, I think it was one last year in the last round. Was there? It was the Adelaide, the Adelaide Oval number two between yeah. the Strikers and the Renegades. But, but I neither think it was just the, the one. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. I think it was just the one. Um, yeah, and the Renegades have got this habit of dropping close matches. So they're, they're right down the bottom of the table again with the, with the sixes down the bottom with one win apiece um, and the Hurricanes up equal top with six points. Six points. They've got the six points. It's all about uh, getting the six <laughs> points and looking forward to next week. Um, but yeah, to, to win it in the Super Over, especially when they lost a wicket from the first ball of it um, and then came back. Erin Burns isn't sort of one of the big star names, but uh, she's a player I've been a bit of a rap for. Um, and she just creamed a couple of deliveries and easily chased the 12 runs that were required from that Super Over. Yeah, they kind of choked too, didn't they? When you when you think about the, the context of that chase, they were two wickets down and they were flying uh, when they lost a couple um, at a crucial moment with like four or five to go. Probably not even that. I think when they lost their third wicket, there might have been like 15 balls to go and they needed 15 runs to win and it was a real capitulation and those two run-outs in the final two balls, both the mollies were run out. Yeah, two mollies run out um, and they managed to get one run amongst those two run-outs. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the second one, they just had to, they needed two to win. They had to come back for the second. There was no choice in it. Um, so they got the first to tie it and then run out coming back for the second. So at least, you know, the throw wasn't mucked up because there's pressure on the fielder at that point as well. But, um, you know, the the first match as well, supremely close um, with the Hurricanes managing to get over the line again. But they came all the way down to the last ball. So Chris Britt um, made runs for the Renegades on both days, 51 not out on Saturday and, and put on 70 with Danny White. Um, who was fortunate, but uh, but nevertheless, she still prevailed. They put on seventy, and that they were the two who were who were leading the charge there. So uh, I guess they've they've got options. The Renegades just they can't close games out. Yeah, and and it's like how long does that go on until you know it starts to become something that's endemic in the in the squad? You know, do they have the confidence to do it? Um, they didn't get a, a lot out of Grace Harris on either of those days with the bat, where she'd really be the one expected to, especially coming out in the super over, tailor made for for Grace Harris really. But um, she wasn't able to get any balls away particularly in that over was you know got a couple of singles and and a dozen from it was I mean it was an okay total but it just didn't feel like enough and, and we buried the lead a bit here Brittany haven't we because um, Amy Satterthwaite was was brilliant for the Hurricanes player of the match on both occasions making 45 not out on Saturday and then 52 not out of 41 balls 
um, on the Sunday. So she continues to be one of the most important players in world cricket. Yeah, I think she's one of the key talking points in these games, performing in both of those. But something that was really interesting for me was the Hurricanes seemed to be able to face spin. And I think that was really a downfall for Melbourne. I mean, Molly Strano was only able to take one wicket in two mm. games. Molyneux couldn't take any. Uh, Harris took one in each game. So there's something to be said there. But funny enough, when it was turned around... The Renegades couldn't face Hayley Matthews' spin, so she yeah. took four wickets. And it was just funny to see that happen, considering last year that was such a big thing in their motto. Yeah, the other thing the Hurricanes have added this season is Veronica Park is making runs, which wasn't really a factor last year. I think she was second on, on the wicket-taking list last year. Good sort of death bowler, pretty tall. Um, but she's started to be a bit of a pitch hitter, made 27 off 15 balls in the, that first game and made a few runs earlier in the round as well. So if she can keep slogging away, that's another weapon for them. I think that's really important for her too because she's 35 years old now. She's a veteran in the Tasmanian side, but to establish herself as an all-rounder as she sort of nears the end of what would be considered in-form age for a cricketer, I think that's important to keep her spot in the side. So it was the Hurricanes with two wins over the Renegades. Let's go west at the Western Sydney Penrith. The Rith. Mm. 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 Got rained there, didn't it, the first time? They tried to play two games there over the weekend. The, the Strikers and the, were visiting for that. Friday, Saturday it was for those right. two. And uh, they didn't get a ball in on the first game. So they were, on the second occasion, the Thunder um, were... Pretty were, miserable, weren't they? Well, they, they have been so far. Yeah. With the exception of that game where they knocked off the Stars in Albury on Monday, um, they conceded a ton of runs to the Stars at North Sydney on TV last Saturday mm-hmm. night. Um, and they have been disappointing. I mean, considering where nearly they Nearly chased them, though. I mean, they, they very nearly pulled that off. Harman yeah. Preet nearly pulled that out of the bag. F- f- fair enough. But, I mean, still, this is the second occasion now where they've been beaten comfortably. So uh, the Thunder made only 102 in their 20 overs. Uh, they lost the toss. Stefani Taylor and Rachel Haynes were both out early. Um, and um, uh, Sophie Devine uh, had, had Taylor move caught behind, showing her sort of dual threat value. And really, they didn't recover. Alex Blackwell stabilised things at number three and made 28. And that it was important after Harman Preet, who you mentioned before, she was out for nothing. She was bowled by Talia McGrath. So uh, Stallenberg and Farrell made some runs towards the bottom of the list. And they, after getting together at five for 53, and they got him up to some sort of respectability. But Adelaide did it easy. And as usual, it's Sophie Devine. Yeah, well, off 33 balls. got the key wicket too. Got, uh, got Taylor out yeah. with the ball. And then uh, came in and made yet another... Uh, 40-odd. She seems to specialise in 40-odds. That's her third score between 41 and 43. I think she's gone 43, 41, 43. Wow. All right, let's see if we can Ever keep so that up consistent. for the rest of the season. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe maybe could go over 50 one day. Wouldn't, wouldn't hurt. But she makes them quickly, and, and that's key. Like, you know, there are a few players in this comp who struggle to really get away, and she's never one of them. The only um, other major talking point from this game is that Blinda Vakawera took what I think is, there won't be a better catch this tournament, sprinting in um, from mid-off and diving at full stretch, full stretch, full way, the whole way forward and just getting the ball in the end of her fingers and to remove Tammy Beaumont for five as well, who's England's dominant opening batsman. So pretty good effort there. What, um, um, Brittany, you've watched the Thunder very closely. What, what's, going on, uh, what's going on in Western Sydney? Uh, I think the Thunder are more comfortable bowling first. There's tight bowlers and fielders and, I mean, Blackwell makes a big factor. I know she did better against the strikers, but when she performs better, she seems to lift up everyone else as the captain. But seeing Belinda Vakarua come in and replace Lauren Cheadle, I think, has been better for them, even though they haven't got the results at the end of the day. Lauren Cheadle was none for 24 in two overs in the first game, and Vakarua was one for eight in that game against the Melbourne Stars in the only game that they've won. So I think she's been key changing that up for them, but otherwise I'm not really sure what to say. It's sort of just been a bit disappointing. 
Yeah, I think in the case of Cheadle and, and, and Vacarera, I always struggle to pronounce her name. They've both got long futures ahead of them. They're both playing in the in the Shooting Stars squad. And, and in the case of Cheadle, she's made her international debut and performed very nicely at T20 level for the Southern Stars. So they've got a very talented young list. Let's keep going further west, Jeffrey. All the way west. All the way west wild, to wild. the Wacker, uh, where the Heat were visiting the Perth Scorchers. They took one rubber apiece in the first one. On the Saturday afternoon, the Heat uh, were, were kept to 101 for nine and the Scorchers made it two down and did it with a leg in the air. Well, I mean, almost sort of inversions of the same game here, mm. you know, where the side batting first is restricted heavily, doesn't get bowled out, but limps to a, a pretty unimpressive total nine wickets down. And then the side batting second chases it two wickets down. Yeah, I liked that all 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 bowlers for the uh, for the for the Scorchers bowled four overs and they all took wickets. It was very neat on the scorecard. Oh, nice. Yeah, elegant. I liked that bit very of symmetry. Yes, and they finished. What a mortal hand or eye! And it was equally as clinical with the bat as well. They did it with uh, only losing two wickets. Um, Nicole Bolton, the Australian opener, forty-six not out. She'll be happy with that to get an early score in the tournament on the board. And yeah, Heather Graham a bit last year really to make her presence yeah, felt. So yeah. she's yeah, you know got got a bit of ground to make up. And Heather Graham made a twenty-nine not out as well. And, and Bolton won it with a reverse sweep. So just uh, just to keep things interesting all the way through to the end. Uh, and then we've got the uh, the reverse fixture, or the, the, um, the heat turned them over. The oh, this hilarious time. one where they have four stumpings in the uh, yeah, in, in the, the Scorchers innings. And, and it was, your, and it was Mo- your favourite, Beth Mooney, Jeff. Yeah, Beth Mooney just kept uh, whipping off the bales um, and also made a truckload of runs when you know she batted and basically chased that score down on her own. 67 not out from 46 balls. Um, Specialised in just making half century after half century last year. So it was, good it, to see her back in the, the runs. Yeah, it was, the, it was the individual performance of the round because... Perth were actually going pretty well at one for 27 in the fifth over, but she took the bales off when Villani um, got her out for 19. It was a very tidy little stumping from the medium pace, I think, of Kimmins. So mm-hmm. not a bad effort at all. And then they lost nine for 67, including those four stumpings. Um, it, it was um, and, and basically those stumpings included um, pretty much the entirety of the middle order, so to pace <laughs> and spin. So, so Mooney was clutched there. And as you say, went out and made um, that 67 in, in no time at all. So they didn't anyone else. They did it two down. They did it easy. So I think that Beth Mooney is showing and that she's really a player on the improve. She made a ton for the Queensland side in the WNCL, Brittany, and she's the sort of player who Australia in the longer term will see as batting at the top of the list, whether that's with the gloves or otherwise. Yeah, definitely. Something that's key when I look at the Brisbane Heat, though, in terms of the start to their competition, their batting's really letting them down. Like, I know Mooney did well in that last game and Dodd and saved them in the first, but mm. for the, the rest of the team, I don't think they're doing that well with the bat. And when you look at their bowling, I mean, Holly Furling, who's supposed to be an opening Southern Stars bowler, she has, she's only taken one wicket in three games. So mm. Srini Mandana, who hasn't really lived up to the hype of all the Indian inclusion in this one that Kaur has, she's only made, I think, you know, three totals less than 10. It's really two players that seem to have saved them in their two wins so far. Yeah, and why is Deandra Dotton coming in at five, uh, Jeff? That, that seems odd to me. That, that you would you would have your, your most dynamic player, and having lost Grace Harris to the Renegades in the mm-hmm. off season, they need to really have a like for like there. I think it's odd that she's coming in down the list. Yeah, I, look, I suppose the rationale is that uh, she's the kind who can come in at the end and, and really ice it after maybe your more sort of stable players through the middle order, Jess Jonathan, and and those types can can provide more of the core of an innings. But especially when they're struggling, yeah, maybe the call is to, to get her through um, at an earlier spot. So so both the Heat and the Scorchers are sitting at two and two, uh, right in the middle of the table, WBBL, after four games played. And finish off, we've gone west, then west again. Let's go to southeast Melbourne and Cranbourne East, to be precise, Jeff, where the Stars mm. had a fantastic weekend against the Sydney Sixers, who are in all sorts. 
Cranbourne, where they invented cranberries. Lovely part of the world down there. It's it a, is. It's where, that, I, it's where I'm from, so it's been nice about it. That's when you're a surprise suburb. <laughs> you know, when you're on the drive to Phillip Island and you think you're out of Melbourne and then suddenly Cranbourne just comes out of nowhere and you're back in the suburbs. Thought you are on the highway. It's not happening. No. Um, yeah, look, the Sixers, well, a bit like last year. Rubbish start. You know, last year they didn't win a game in their first six. This year, at least, they've got one win on the board, but that's the only one they've got. And they've looked quite ordinary, really. I mean, Meg Lanning did them on her own in that first match, and that was pretty easy for her. 66 not out from 48 balls, chasing 122. And, you know, then when it came to the second one, they just couldn't put a decent total together. 111 was all they managed off their 20 overs. So pretty underwhelming round all up with the bat. Yeah, and certainly up the top as well. There was a commonality between the two performances. Mm-hmm. Early wickets, Perry uh, and Healy and Van der Kirk, who made two ducks, the South African captain in those two games. So that, they were three for five on the and first it, game and it wasn't much better in the second. Perry and Healy were dismissed pretty much the same way in both of those games. Oh, did you see that YouTube of Perry getting yeah, dismissed? By identically? And, and Inglis, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the dismissal for Perry, down to the appeal, down to the celebration, it was, was quite exactly extraordinary. The same. Off. And Alyssa right. Healy was bowled by Hazel both of the times too. So Yeah, yeah, that's right. So Danny Hazel from England, the uh, England spinner who's filling in for, uh, filling in at the moment as, a, as a player. Beams. Kristen Beams. I was trying to work out, yeah, Kristen Beams. Kristen's really going to have to fight to get back in that side. She's doing very well. And I think um, she only gets to play for, I, th- I think they've only signed her until Beams comes back. I think they've done one of those deals. Yeah, yeah, one of those injury replacements. The technical committee has it's approved sort of a unlikely. change to the squad. <laughs> it's sort of unlikely um, when she will come back, though. Mm. So the Sixers made 122 for eight in the first game and 111 for eight in the second. On both occasions, the Stars did it easy with three wickets down in the first game. Exciting for me. Jess Cameron made runs into that. I've been pretty pumped about her comeback after she had a bit of a break. So 45 not and the secret life of Katie Mack, 48 not out. Um, <laughs> she chipped in quite a few times this season too after a, a pretty miserable one last year. So, you know, maybe the, maybe the Stars have got that support for Lanning. She can't do it every single time and she didn't in that second game, was out for nine and Normally last year that would have meant they were done, um, but now they've got a bit more uh, in reserve. And the Sixers, uh, Brittany, will be encouraged by Ash Gardner, who made 38 in the first fixture, an unbeaten 43 in the second, using her feet really well on both days, getting down the track and hitting down the, down the ground particularly well. Um, that means that they were able to, you know, at least have, show some backbone when they lost their, their top three. Yeah, I, the Sixers seem to, as you said, just be having the same sort of start as they did last year. Um, to come back to the Stars, and you talked about Jess Cameron and some of the other people that are performing in the batting order when Meg Lanning isn't, I think that really is key, as you said, Jeff. And I know that seems obvious. you top four. You need to be the strongest and spend a good time getting their iron at the crease. But it's something that let them down last year. And at the moment, they've only faced two teams, Sydney um, teams too. So... It's hard to say, but if you go off the WNCL form leading into this and how many players make up those two sides from the New South Wales side, then they look to be doing really well early. They, uh, they are last, the Sixers, on two points alongside the Renegades with one win from their four games. At the top end of the ladder, the Stars are, are top of the pops, three wins and one loss. The Hurricanes, likewise. And then we get into a, a stream of teams that have won two games, including the Strikers, the Heat, and the Scorchers uh, before we have the Thunder and the Renegades and the Sixers rounding it out. So we're four games in this week and uh, on Boxing Day on the 27th at AB Field. It's the Heat and the Stars. They play twice over two days at Glenelg in South Australia. The Strikers host the Hurricanes on two occasions and at Blacktown for one game, Showgrounds for the others. It's the Renegades 
and the Thunder. On the 28th, we have the Thunder hosting the Sixers at the showgrounds in their Sydney Smash. And on the 29th, there's two further games. The Sixers and the Hurricanes at Hurstville, also in Western Sydney. And the Renegades and the Scorchers at Melbourne's Dockland Stadium on television. So make sure you get yourself down to those games and continue supporting what's been a fantastic WBBL so far. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Jeff, the Big Bash League is back tonight, starting off with the Thunder and the Sixers in that traditional season opener. It's uh, turned into... <laughs> I love that you can call it a traditional season opener as yeah. well. Oh, yes. The lime green versus the hot pink. Yeah. Uh, but, but, as but, it was when I was a boy. But in a way, that's what they want, right? They, they, yeah. they like the idea that people are now getting used to this competition being yeah. part of the rhythm of summer. It certainly mm-hmm. was last year, getting 80,000 to the MCG for one of those Melbourne derbies or derbies, whatever, whatever, whatever is your preference. It's a derby, Adam. We have a bit of class in this booth. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Derby it is. It's Derby in West Australia, isn't it? So I should be aware of that. Either way, the uh, the, 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 the guts of it is, is that it starts again and we know there's going to be an influx of interest. We know that it's going to be on TV every night. We know that it's going to start to dominate the, the discussion around cricket for the next six weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that it has a substantial influence on the international cricket summer and vice versa. There's no first-class cricket. People can't get into the test team. Um, there'll also be this weird thing with the one-dayers being played through the middle of the Big Bash meaning that like teams will have some of their best players stolen uh, and that, mm. that, that it, it sort of warps the, the Big Bash competition as well. So, you know, which one should be taking primacy? I quite like, in a way, I mean, it's not ideal that they don't have a window the way that IPL does uh, in India where there's no international cricket. So that does um, count against, well, not no international cricket, but limited international cricket. We, because it runs against the Australian domestic summer, it does mean that um, teams that have... Um, squad depth a, a better place. So the, I guess the classic contrast is the Melbourne Stars versus the Sydney Sixers. The mm. Sydney Sixers on paper um, are a phenomenal side, but they uh, they lose the bulk of their international players to, to duty in, in two formats of the game for Australia, whereas the Stars have got these replacement players who seem to be um, just outside the, Australians, the Australian mm. team alongside a couple of internationals who aren't currently playing for England. And before you know it, you've got yourself a far more competitive side, which on paper probably shouldn't be if it was the best 11 versus the best 11. So, Although then you get punished for performing well, as in last year, John Hastings and Scott Boland yes. got yanked out of the Melbourne Stars side because they were bowling so well at the death. Suddenly they're in the one-day squad. Nice for them because they were playing international cricket, but it, it really limited the, the Stars as they tried to win a title. I, I like that you get a full day's cricket now. I think that the best thing for me is that if you're a kid growing up you can watch the test test match day and then and then parlay that straight into to watching a, a T20 mm. game or even a couple of T20 games, some of those doubleheaders on the weekend. It's a, you know, imagine what a, what a, what a delight that would have been as a young uh, boy just, in front of the television. Just gorging yourself on, on hours and hours and hours of the stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems kind of crazy at this stage, but, you know, it's, uh, it's an indulgence that, that we all enjoy over the festive season. And, and it's big business too. I mean, there's a salary cap of $1.4 million. There's $450,000 by the side that wins it, 260000 for the runner-up. There's 32 group games being played between the 20th of December and the 21st of January then a couple of semis and the grand final on the 28th of January. We've seen Brad Hogg move clubs this year from the, the Perth Scorchers where he's won titles to the Melbourne Renegades at age 45. That's probably the most you know, significant move of the summer because Hogg's career at T20 level just seems to go on and on. Yeah and, and, and bizarre that, that someone of such advanced years is getting that level of attention, you know, that he is the maybe the most significant domestic move I suppose. Um, Stuart Broad, I reckon the most interesting sort of from outside, you know, the most interesting new international getting involved. Yeah, I love that, especially that he uh, is trying to get his way back into the England white ball teams and he's using uh-huh. the BBL to 
use that as a platform. Like yeah. He's freely admitting that he wants to play in the ICC Champions Trophy, right. which is being played in um, in the UK. Because he doesn't play enough cricket. Well, it's because he feels like white ball cricket is yeah. limited. He does not play a lot of it anymore. He's yeah. in the test side and then he's, he's playing for his county and there's not a lot of mm-hmm. white ball stuff to, to, to give him the chance to prove himself. And this is a great opportunity for him. Isn't that lovely that he's going to make a section of Australian fans have to cheer for him? Because he'll be in their side. He, he gets at least one-eighth of the, of the Australian but I think it's I suppose same. Hobart it's the smallest city it's probably got the smallest fan base I think but. I wanted I think I, I think I was vaguely a Hurricanes fan before this started at okay. least broadly now I'm very much a Hurricanes fan I'm a Stuart Broad apologist can, way back can you so. imagine like you know a, a Bell Reeve Oval you know full to, full as a boot if you will down at Boot Park <laughs> um, singing he's big he's bad he's better than his dad yeah. Stuart Broad and, and hopefully sculling out of a boot afterwards yeah. including with their Queensland friends we spoke about earlier in the podcast today. <laughs> let's just go through the same real quick um, we, we won't dwell on this because we know this has been a rather long recording today. The strikers have um, made the semi-finals routinely. They they, mm-hmm. they seldom miss out. Um, they've, they've retained Brad Hodges, captain. Uh, like Hogg, he's about 100 years old. He's also the skipper. Um, Kyron Pollard is is back after a knee injury last year, so they're bolstered there. Chris Jordan's here for now, but he might miss out due to England one day international. So there's this yeah. thing as well, isn't there? With England playing ODIs against India, it might mean that some of the internationals from out there may not last the whole journey. And Joe Warden has gone from the strikers. He he had a couple of pretty good knocks last year. Um, Adil Rashid is a probably a bigger out for them, though. He was so, so good last season. Yeah, the most prolific spinner in the comp. Yeah, um, you know, and really dominated, really just, it was incredibly hard to get him away. I'll be interested to see whether um, Jake Lehman uh, mm-hmm. can, can gazump, well, can effectively replace Travis Head, because Travis Head will be playing in the one-day side. Yeah, true. He'll so be gone. So Lehman will have a chance to start, because he was batting number six in that strikers lineup. Yep. you know, famously batted once for one six. His first innings was a six, you know, three weeks into the comp last year, because the strikers were so convincing with the, with the bats. So whether, whether Lehman can step up on national television and really, you know, force his claim for a national call-up. And then we go down to Brisbane, or rather over to Brisbane from Adelaide for the Brisbane Heat. Mm-hmm. They were sixth last year. They struggled. But what they've got in their favour is not many Australian players. So they've recruited Brendan McCullum to be their skipper. Uh, but, uh, he's had his back surgery too, so he's apparently in much better shape than he was towards the end of his international career. Right. Well, that's encouraging for them because he's certainly a match winner, as is Chris Lynn. We get Lynn Sanity back, which we're all looking forward mm-hmm. to on, on the Twitterverse. Uh, he's uh, probably someone who's missed out on taking his chances for Australia, both through form and injury. When he's had a couple of them, he's just coming back through the ranks at the moment, so that's quite helpful. He was the best player in WBBL 05 and recognised accordingly. So those two are legitimate match winners. And also Joe Burns. Now, Joe Burns won't be playing for Australia, but he's he's probably a, a cut above state cricket still. So he, he should be an influence in this tournament. He should be able to dominate, but T20 isn't necessarily his format. You know, he played a couple of games last year and it wasn't particularly convincing. And Manus Labuschagnach, the South African, who's, <laughs> well, he sort of changed the pronunciation of his own name to make it easier for Australians. So he tells people his name is Labuschagne. Yeah, not um, Because it's just too hard. Labuschagne is a bit too nuanced. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, is that now his name? I mean, does, has he decided he pronounces it that way? I don't well, know. Speaking of pronunciations, uh, Badre, or Badre, as he's routinely called, he's mm-hmm. also back. Badre's uh, a champion. Uh, playing, he is a champion. He played in the World T20 side for the West Indies at age 35. And uh, and, I, and I think he's the sort of player who can, t- who, who can you know, play a role in, yeah. in, in in being top of the spin list for, Took for them. Took a great five for last year where he, he got, I think, the first five wickets to fall and they were all within you know a couple of overs. Um, just absolutely ridiculous bowler in, in that he's 
Very, very difficult to get away. And just spells this sort of sneaky leg spin sliding onto the pads, but nobody can hit him. Let's keep moving through. Hurricanes down in Tasmania. We mentioned Stuart Broad's in. DJ Sammy's finished up um, finished up uh, playing for them this year. He's uh, he's uh, not going to be around. We're, we're not going to heaven with uh, DJ Sammy anymore. Damn. There's about four people in the world that will get that joke. If you did, good on you. Um, Joe Menny's off to the sixes. Stark and Hazelwood uh, need a bit of cover, so that's why Joe Menny's gone over there. We'll enjoy watching him bowl for Sydney, but he won't be playing for Hobart. I guess the narrative here is that, um, is that Broad has a, a foot injury, which he's still coming back from. So whether he can properly play, that's 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 yet to be seen. And Sangakara struggled last year. That's, yeah, he was awful. Uh, so whether he can, uh, whether he can, you know, be credible. And then George Bailey, who really needs to um, continue to make runs, suppress for a claim if he is to go to India. And that's a bit, you know, a bit out there that he could convert T20 form into a Test match touring spot. But we've seen stranger things. Yeah, but he's going to be yanked out um, to go into the one day side of around course, about January yeah. 10 or 13 or whatever it is that they start the one day series. So he'll be gone. Dan Chris. And uh, will be, you know, needing to step up in his place, I suppose. That massive six last year, putting on the roof of the Gabba. Yeah, Ben Ben Dunk is out. He's over to, to Adelaide. Every time I see B Dunk on the scorecard, my brain turns into B Drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are you trying to tell me something, a scorecard? Uh, and that's maybe why I have a problem. But, um, yeah, so he's, he's out. Uh, and, you know, he could be pretty damaging on his day as well. But they've, and they've got uh, Sean Tate, the Tater. Oh, yeah. The potato. Who, who, who found a way back into the international squad against all expectations last year. Played one game, got hit for a million. But he'll be, yeah. he'll be, back, with the, uh, he'll be back with the Kane train as well. Let's go down to Melbourne, the Renegades. They don't have any, well, any major uh, international players to speak of after losing Chris Gale. But they do have uh, Sunil Narayan, who I shouldn't underestimate, actually. He is a significant recruit, uh, yeah. the, the mystery spinner. Significant force and, you know, probably less likely to be an objectionable human than Chris Gale, yes. maybe. Um, I, th- I, think he, I think he is a less objectionable human than yeah. Chris Gale on, on the basis that you can almost be not as, as objectionable. Yeah, it's it very yeah. difficult it's to be thing, as. Yeah. 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 Um, I think um, Marcus Harris is a good signing as well. He's, he's a yeah. bit under the radar. You know, he's not particularly someone who there's, you know, huge wraps on or or in or around. I don't know what the wraps are supposed well, to do. He's having a very good shield season after making the move yep. from Western Australia. So he's certainly locked down his spot at the top of the Victorian list. And then also Brad Hogg, we mentioned before, who's weirdly coming to Melbourne after several years uh, playing for the Scorchers at age 45. Like, he started his first-class career a quarter of a century ago. This is wow. a... This is a, an yeah. extraordinary tale. It's ridiculous. Um, and, you know, maybe ridiculous might be the bowling lineup. Siddle, Pattinson, uh, a couple of pretty handy names if they can get their comebacks from injury right. Oh, and Tremaine, Chris Tremaine, who, mm. who, who ran them out. Um, there's a lot of talk around how well he's bowling at the moment for Victoria. And, and again, he's another player who's had some Australian experience going on that South African limited overs tour uh, back in October. And he'll fancy his chances of seeing Australian representation again if he can perform well here. Crosstown at the Stars. Uh, they they lost the final last year. Kevin Peterson will be back. He wants to go one better. Luke Wright as well, um, the English batting contingent over at the MCG. No, not a single change to their squad that made the final and lost to the Thunder at the MCG last year, which I find quite remarkable in the mm-hmm. modern game, how you can go summer to summer and retain a squad of 18, not a single yeah. move. That, that's that's extraordinary. Petey Hanscom, he'll be missing for the test matches, but do you reckon he's a shout to work his way into the one-day team as well? Well, you have to be. Well, they were talking him up for the one-day squad before. They were really talking him up for test selection last year. So he'd be some... And, some and he was in the squad in England. He was one of those he emergencies was. that was drafted in in 2015. Yeah, that's not a bad shout, actually. He was so important last year. Uh, but they're also going to lose, we mentioned before, Faulkner, Maxwell, Zampa. I mean, but, the, but, but I mean, they're, they're relying on the two English players, Peterson and Wright. Well, and of course, the Australian team needs Maxwell to carry the drinks. So yeah, that's very important to you. 
Kennedy's. Uh, Marcus Stoinis is, 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 uh, he played a big role last year, as did uh-huh. John Hastings. He fit. I mean, Hastings won't be fit, yeah. isn't he? He's, Hastings he's, is um, he's now ruled out. He's knee surgery. Yeah, the, I, I think I, uh, I, I wrote this note before we had that media release two days ago saying that he's, that he's out for he's the rest of the season. He's definitely gone, yeah. Scotty Boland, though, he's not in, in the international squad right now, no. although he was in Sri Lanka and bowled quite well. Ben Hilfenhaus, the veteran from Tasmania, keeps on keeping on. Dan yep. Worrell, who's now played for Australia at one day international level. And, of course, Michael Beer. Former test uh, <laughs> spinner. Former test spinner. That's right. So, so they, they really do do well at... At, at, at complimenting the, the guys who are playing for Australia with those who once have, so maybe a bit of money ball action mm-hmm. going on there. Now, back out west again for our second time today. It's uh, Ian Bell is the big recruit to the Scorchers, um, replacing Michael Carberry, who, of course, is ill at the moment, receiving treatment back at home. Um, other high-profile move, Mitchell Johnson uh, is back in Australian cricket for yeah, the looking first time over to 12 this. months. Looking forward to seeing whether he can bring himself to actually give a fig about this. So, you know, I reckon he does. He He's got heaps of media. He could, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where he could be awful. You know, he could just kind of plop it down the other end and, and get smacks, or he could be kind of excited to be back after being out of competitive cricket for a while um, and really fire up and be a weapon. Heaps of experience. So you add Johnson and Bell to what they already have in Adam Voges, who's out of Australian contention at the moment. You've got mm-hmm. Maxi Klinger, who has been such a force at Gloucestershire in this form of the game, and no one in Australia can understand why his Australian cap number is zero. Like he's still yet to play for Australia in any format. In any format, yeah. Um, then they've got Agar and Bancroft and Whiteman, who are young and close to the Australian setup. They've got AJ Ty and Joel Paris that both played games last year, although yeah. I think Paris is now injured as well. I think I he saw is. something the other day. And Hilton Cartwright, who got picked for the one-day international squad all but, you know, what, three or four weeks ago. So across yeah. the board down at the Furnace, they've got probably the most balanced side, and, and you think they've got to go in close to favourites. And then the Sixers, the last side, uh, Sam Billings, they're signing. So, so English batsman popular this year. Yeah. Yeah, Michael Lum's retired from, from formal international cricket, I think. I think he's on that Pakistan Super League or whatever it is now oh, right. Graham Swan played in last year. Yeah, the retiree, um, the, the, reti- the one that Dirk Nattis went off to play after commentary duties for ABC. Yeah, the one that you've, you've, you've heard reports of not being paid for, I think, as well. Um, other high-profile moves, uh, as we mentioned before, for the Sixers. Jay Menny's into the squad. They'll need him, losing Stark and Hazelwood. And Steve Smith's off the list. Yeah, they booted him, because why have him? I mean, it was like <laughs> when they were signing Michael Clark for the Thunder or whatever. Yeah. Like, there's no chance. There's less than zero chance that he'll but, ever be available for a game. I really actually think that's a commendable move because yeah. I think it demonstrates the maturity of the BBL that sure. you think that it's more it's more important to have an 18th player than it is to retain your Australian captain. It's, yeah, it, as know, a sort of marquee signing just to put him on the website and say, that's oh, right. oh we're great. it's great to have Steve Smith in the Sixers squad. Yeah. You know, yeah, so marketing has sort of taken a back seat now to right. actual cricket. I think I think it really does reflect the maturity of the comp. And they're the hardest hit by Australian representation by a mile. We already mentioned Stark Hazelwood. Maddinson, who's in the test side, Nathan Lyon and Bird, of course, as well. Steve O'Keefe probably will be by the end of the summer. Um, that'll mean Sean Abbott's got a massive job to do again. He'll be alongside probably Travis Bird later on in the summer when the one day is start. Jackson um, Bird. Jackson Bird. What are they, what Travis are they Bird. Travis Bird. Yeah, Travis Head and Travis Jackson Bird. Bird have got together. It'd be a hell of a player if you could yeah. do both of what those guys could do. Gosh, a bit, bit loose there from me. Yeah. Moses Henriques <laughs> is still the skipper. He's got, um, of course, uh, the, the experience of Brad Haddon and Dougie Bollinger. Yeah, if you need people to yell at people, they, they that's your pair. <laughs> well, they could go back-to-back anyway. So they, they came last last year and I mean, if Sam Billings goes to India, and he probably will, they are very light on. Uh, and uh, the Thunder, 
the the, the crosstown rivals. The They've got Owen Morgan for a little bit, so that's that's kind of interesting. So, of course, of course, of course, Shane Robert Watson has injured a calf muscle, so Naturally. so he's so he's going to miss the first few games. And but Morgan's going to sub in and captain for him, which is handy to have uh, an international captain on your list. But he, yeah, he's going straight to India after the first few games, so presumably Watto takes over. Usman Khawaja um, will leave. A, he made a massive dent in the four games he, he played last year, so they're going to have to replace him. He made a couple of centuries and a couple of beautiful fifties. Oh, carried them, you know, yeah. into the final. He was crucial to their to their uh, to their title, which they won on the MCG against the Stars. Uh, I think. Uh, well, they've got um, uh, Pat Cummins, who will probably also miss for the one days too. So, you know, this is a common theme amongst the high profile players. Uh, um, and also Andre Russell, this is a bit of an odd one. So there's a, there's a, there's a drug yeah. cloud hanging over him. Well, he's missed, what, three drug tests now in his That's career, right. which means at that point you're supposed to be suspended. Um, uh, as though you've failed, you know, as in he's, you know, hasn't been available when required to be tested. So that's not a great look. And he's, uh, once, he's won six titles in the last 12 months for yeah. various different organisations. He's obviously a player who can legitimately win game with that. Well, well yeah. But... I mean, I was sitting in the, the, the press box in in India when he was absolutely showering us with sixes in that, that, that <laughs> semi-final against yeah. India. You know, it was terrifying. I kept ducking. I, I kept crashing into the glass. But um, I think his hearing has been set for partway through the season. So okay. until that point, he can play. Okay. But well, it's, it's very dicey. I think the thing is, especially Michael Hussey not playing in that side anymore, retiring in the last yeah. year, they've got a lot of holes relative to what they had in 2015-16. So if they were to go back-to-back, it'd be a mighty effort. I, I don't yeah, see Yeah, I, I think they're going to crash this year, to, um, is my read on it. Yeah, I hope not, though, because I'd love to see what I go back-to-back. It'd be great to see, just have another, just something, something, something else for what I do. Well, it's particularly because he'd, you know, he'd be captaining the side where, where Hussey was sort of in charge last year. It'd be cute. Either way, it all starts on uh, this evening, provided you hear this podcast on the 20th of December. If you hear it on the 21st, you'll, uh, you'll know the result of that first Sydney, uh, Sydney smash derby, whatever you want to call it. You could time travel back to the 20th and listen to it on the 20th and then Go get the grace, back to the future. And get the Grey Sports Almanac in 1955 and yep. then give it to Biff Tannen and then change the course Yeah, but of if you muck it up, Donald Trump becomes president. I know. This is, this, is the, this is the world we live in. I think, Jeff, we have talked about every conceivable angle of Australian cricket over the last seven days in the uh-huh. last 60 or so minutes. So I'm going to leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure to bring you the final word, as it always is. We will be back with you next week for another range of uh, cricket items, especially leading into the Boxing Day test. I think we'll probably do it after the Boxing yeah, Day test. Yeah, let's do it after the Boxing Day test. And until that time, eat festively, hug people you like, and be nice to absolutely bloody everybody, because why not? And why not carry that from this part of the season into the year beyond? Merry Christmas to you. We'll uh, see you soon.